2019 in September, I was coming back from a trip from Milan with a client. And it was probably like, I don't know, four to five months previously, I had a little bit of a pain in my hip. I was like, ah, that's nothing. It's probably a sports injury. I was doing jiu-jitsu every day. I was like 230 pounds. I was lifting all the time. I was like really fit. And I was like, ah, I probably tore something in my labrum. But because a lot of my friends from the early days in Iraq have been getting sick, you know, mm. I got an MRI out of pocket. And the radiologist called me within a half an hour. He's like, hey, bro, I've been doing this 25 to 30 years. I have never seen this before. goes on the business trip he goes to i think it was sofax um it's a special operation uh exhibition where defense companies come in in amman jordan and they showcase their wares for military groups from around the world it's a very big show and this is 2011 it's 2010 okay so it was like may i think it was so He'd been over there for a day or two, and we had other guys in our, in our company. It was uh, called Indigen Armor. Um, we had several people that I had worked with in the past, some from GRS. And we had some guys from, like, the SEAL community, and they're all very reliable people. So my phone rings about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I pick it up, and it was another uh, business owner. And... Uh, he was he pad, patched around on. I said, hey, what's going on, bro? It's like 3.30 in the morning. I knew it was bad. And he's like, you got you to gotta hold on for the private equity guys. They, they want to be on the call. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? Like, we've known each other for, you know, been overseas and all this stuff. What, what do you mean? Like, you call me at 3.30 in the morning. I want to know what's up. Because I just, I just kind of knew. I knew. And um, he, he, anyway, he go, comes on and he goes, yeah, John's John's dead. And I'm like, what What the fuck do you mean he's dead? I just talked to him yesterday. And I didn't really put a lot of, because we had situations in the past where we had, I worked with a guy named Tex. That was his call sign. We all had call signs. And, uh, you know, one time, I think I was working with him, I think. But somebody called back to, to Texas and to to his wife and was like, hey, sorry, Tex is dead. Well, it turned out to be another Tex. Oh. So our rat network is so fast that it's mind-blowing. And that's how information was relayed back in the day. It was kind of like there wasn't a – the official channels took forever. So you're always getting it from somebody that knows you. So I'm like, are you sure? Are you 100% that he's deceased, man? What happened? So, you know, what happened was he, he – Long story short, he fell 40 feet to his death. I mean, that's what, what, ha what happened. But so I get the call and he's like, yes. I said, well, I want somebody needs to be by his side from now to when he gets back, we get his body back here. And I still was in a little bit of shock. So his, his wife, John lived up the street from me. We all in lived, the U.S. Yeah. He lived, I was living like Lake, Lake Wiley, South Carolina. So his, you know, him and his wife, they had two daughters and his wife was nine months pregnant. They lived maybe two or three doors down. Oh my, God. my CFO was in the neighborhood. Another general manager for our company was, 
and Ron was a little bit further away. He was maybe like 20 minutes from me. So I said, Hey, but you know, I called my buddy Ron. I said, Hey bro, we gotta, we gotta notify next again, me and Jackie and it's going to suck. I was like, can you come to the house? So he was there straight away and we waited from probably like four thirty in the morning to try to like, you know, we didn't even talk about what we we're going to say. And I was like, fuck, I've, I've been in some bad situations with this kind of stuff, but this was the hit one hit really close to home. Cause he was like my partner in Iraq. He was only 32. We thought those days were done and we'd just been working in the trenches, like, like trying to build a business from scratch and just working our tails off to make it successful. And we finally got to the deal and it was like, not, I, th I think it was like a week or two. It was pretty soon after the deal was struck. I mean, he's gone and he's like, you know, my boss, um, as well. So we all walk up. It was me, my ex-wife and Ron and we knock on the door and it was one of the worst things that I've ever had to do. And I've had to do some pretty horrible things in my life, <laughs> but, um, yeah, his wife, you know, his daughter's answer at the door. It's like 6 a.m. Son's barely up. And his two daughters, you know, they're all super cute, man. Um, and um, they answer the door and, like, Riley, the younger one, was like, yeah, daddy's out making money. I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh my You're killing me, dude. And she comes down the stairs. So one of us whisked two kids into the kitchen, and she just looked at me, man. And... She just came out of the shower. I think she had like a, a robe on and a towel. And she just saw me, my ex-wife, and uh, Ron. And she just fell to her knees and just wailed, dude. Like the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. And it took me – yeah, that was the, when the wheels started coming off the bus because I had to go from there briefing my buddy John who passed away on a work trip to go to our company and make sure everybody – you know, tell everybody everything's going to be good to go. You know, like be the rock at work. So it was a series of unfortunate events. Like this is kind of like the reason I emphasize this part of my, my story is it was like the catalyst for dealing with, you know, a decade of PTS and other things. I believe this is probably the catalyst of what set things in motion that I didn't realize until really about a year ago, if that, after really d diving into my own demons and things like that. So after I briefed his wife, go back to the company, our main thing was like, how do we get his body back? So we picked his body up, you know, had a military escort, great service and everything. But that was another like bit of trauma was just like, you know, we had to pick his body when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply up in this casket it was made of wood in a suburban i drove with ron again and john's father and the story was at still at the time he fell yeah 40 feet like what yeah. did they say well i'll get into that kind of on the latter part okay. but like right. as we're driving back you know I, we pick it up they have the color guard we're like literally just picking this wooden gray wooden box 
just throwing in our suburban. And then his dad wanted, wanted to to have closure, and he wanted to get eyes on. And like he's like, I want to open his casket. And I was like, Oh my oh. goodness, dude! It's been a week, bro. He's embalmed overseas, and he fell forty feet. It was just a, like I can't emphasize how crazy my life was for about a year or two. It was just utter chaos. So we're crowbarring it open, do all this, and you know, I've seen a lot of death, and um, but I mean, I just saw him like a couple of days previously. You know, it's just wild. And uh, so is is that we empty the casket? And there's a casket inside the casket, and then I was like, I had to tell his wife whether or not she should view his body. And I was like, well, he fell forty feet, and it's not a good way to remember. But everybody, so I, I told her this, and then the next day his body turned black, so he <sighs> could she couldn't get closure, and I felt like a heel. And then you know I had his his you know urine with his ashes in my on my nightstand every night for like six months because his wife couldn't deal with it at the time. And I didn't think it was impacting me at all at the time. I was just kind of focused, like task oriented. Right. And, you know, basically where all this led was I worked for the company for eight months. And when we got him back, had a great funeral, got, got his family squared away. We said, look, we want to make sure his, his wife is taken care of financially. So we all had, really good life insurance policies. And I can't get into any of the specifics. People can read between the lines, however they like. But so basically he had a very large life insurance policy and we all had the same as staple to his employment agreement. And we just wanted to make sure she was good. She, she had one kid on the way to, you know, nine months pregnant and, you know, two to take care of. And, um, so long story short, the, uh, you know, everybody said, yeah, no, he's going to get taken care of. Don't worry about it. But I could quickly understand, <clears throat> I got the sense that um, there was going to be something going on with the life insurance policy since we just got acquired. We didn't know these outsiders, you know. So I worked for eight months and I'd be like, hey, are we going to, is she going to get the life insurance payment? Where are we at? And they wouldn't answer me, like not direct. How could... And, How could you not get it, though? Well, they were like, well, there's some legal... I, I don't want to get into all the details. Okay, there was right. a gray area. There was like kind of a, a slight gray area, but it was totally manageable. And anyway, I waited for eight months and I would go, hey, where are we at? And I kind of knew I have a really good gut when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I said, where are we at with taking care of his state and his wife? And it came about eight months it was like the, the December of 2010. I just was, I was drinking all the time, trying to manage the company. I was there for the birth of his kid, you know, and d dealing with this fallout. And I said, man, I had enough, dude. Call New York and tell him I want an ultimatum, you know. I want to know what you guys are going to do. And they said, yeah, tell his wife to sue us. So she did. Oh. She did. And I resigned that day on the spot with no exit strategy because I knew it was coming which I think it was a bit of a moral injury to me, um, having to work for, and I couldn't tell any of the other employees because these guys were loyal as hell. They would have quit, and but they had no exit strategy. That was my decision. I just couldn't work ethically. I disagreed sure. with things from an ethical viewpoint. Um, you know, blood's thicker than water, and I, I wanted to physically. I wanted to murder people that you know 
I want to do really bad things to people. And it, I struggle with that too. Cause I was like, what would John do if I, I was in his position? He would have burnt this place to the fucking ground. Yeah. He would have fucking murked everybody. And it just made me feel really like kind of trapped because I had to look out for my employees. And so I just left and literally on the year first year anniversary, my wife left me. And uh, on the, on literally the day of she had tied up, we, she left me like right, right after all this happened. So I, I resigned my position. John's dead. Had to inform his wife. Then my wife decided she, ah, I'm going to move back to DC. I'm in a 6,000 square foot home, you know, with no job. <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, this is a lot of stuff going on. So had you had like were there cracks in your marriage before that or well i think i was so hyper focused on other like on john's situation like i have no resentment because there was so mm -hmm. much going on it was all consuming like i would eat sleep you know drink work and just to get through <clears throat> so it was a super difficult because i wasn't prepared for it at all i was like oh man uh, one i don't i have no employer <laughs> you know I've got responsibilities, financial responsibilities. I had no extra strategy because it was a moral and ethical decision that I, I had to do. And now this, and I'm like, holy shit. And it's gone, you know? And so I'm in the house and that, all that anxiety and stuff, like that's when my anxiety started ramping up after all that stuff happened. Right. I started drinking and self-medicating because that was the only time my anxiety got worse and worse and I got more withdrawn and uncomfortable around people. That's where it started with me is, um, with other people, I wasn't comfortable in work settings. And then I had to go, I had the pressure of going find another employer, which happened, but I took about six months off and I was just like Jim Morrison dude drinking like a half to a fifth, but I was working out all the time too. Cause when I would work out the only time my anxiety and depression would go away, it was when I redlined myself. And like, meaning to the brink of exhaustion, like just mm. redlining. <clears throat> and one of, one of the things I would do is an aerodyne bike because I was so fit. The, the more fit I got, the more resistance I had to the mm. work. And <clears throat> so it wasn't an answer. So then I started dichotomy. drinking. Yeah. yeah. So I tried a healthy modality first. I'm like, maybe I got to do two workouts a day, three days. You know, I would do three a days. Um, you also at the time technically <coughs> at the time you technically Sorry. don't no you're good you technically don't have a a purpose in the sense that you had obviously you're trying to take care of whatever you can with John's family but you had always had a very serious job for your entire right. adult life and this is the first, I mean like you said you're unemployed for six months yeah it felt like a survival situation really mm. like you know, you go from having a purpose to like, I just got to survive. Like, how am I going to pay the bills? Well, I got to go find a job. Well, how am I going to find a job where I've got all this anxiety where I can't even be around people? I, so I started taking Vicodin, Percocet. <clears throat> I was drinking every day. And then I was taking Ambien because I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia for two, about two years. And I still have problems sleeping now. Um, but the only time I could go to sleep is if I got blacked out, you know, like... I would sleep for just maybe an hour or two and just wake up or so I knew those weren't solutions, but that was the only way that I could function. So it wasn't about the addictions weren't the issue. It was an outlet to get, you know, 
the nonsense in my brain to subside. Even if it was briefly, it was worth it, like, at the time. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I dealt with that for, like, six months. I was just a, a wreck. I was super emotional, hypervigilant, super angry. Oh, so um, the hypervigilance kicked in. Yeah. Had you dealt with that at all? or I had it. I've always had it, like, door locking and weird stuff. Like, yeah. And people, just around people, you're kind of at a height. height and it just felt like my, my parasympathetic nervous system was firing fight or flight all day long, mm. 24-7, no shut off. So now it's, if I'm understanding just, this correctly, it's bothering you now versus yeah. it hadn't been bothering you when it was present previously. Right. And okay. what's strange is... When I got shot up or blown up or been like near death experiences, which I've had quite a few, I never got, I never had fight or flight. Mm. Like my instinct was always defaulting to training because we train, train, you know, train to fight. He just kind of was like autopilot. It was like smooth. There was no chaos in my head. It was just, there was chaos all around me, but I just felt like hyper focused. But this situation just felt, didn't even make sense. I'm like, I'm not in a threat. There's no threat here. Like I'm by myself. I got to a point where I would sit in my house and sweat. Like mm. when I say sweat, like I'd have to change my clothes three or four times a day, take two or three showers. Like it was the strangest thing. And I had to get a cooling blanket to sleep at night. Cause I would soak through comforters. Like this happened up to like two years ago. And so I had to mask all this stuff to go perform work. And while I was successful, this is would, when you got into executive protection. Well, Again, I left this company. I still, before this happened, everything came to a head. It was in 2011. So my wife left. John's dead. Um, I've got, I, I, re, I resigned, had no exit strategy. How am I going to, had all this pressure. So and I was self-medicating, doing all the things that you should not do. Um, you know, if you're depressed, you shouldn't. I tried to go to my 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 primary health uh, primary health provider. I said, "Hey, bro, I couldn't tell him I'm suicidal because I had a top secret clearance. I needed that for future employment. Mm. I was afraid they're going to take my guns. They're going to Baker Act me, lock me up, or they're going to it's going to go on my record, and the government's going to find out, and they're going to freaking fire me. I'll never be employable again." Okay, I didn't know about all these resources. I didn't even Google search anything back then. So I just was like, hey, I'm I know I'm I got anxiety. It's crazy. I'm depressed. He didn't even ask me if I was suicidal, but I wasn't gonna tell him that because I was worried. I gotta work. Um I'm like, what can you do? I was like crying, like emotional. I was like, this is so crazy. This guy probably thinks I'm so crazy, which I probably was. And so he gave me Ambien, he gave me Xanax, like all the drugs. He just throws drugs at me. So Those I'm like pills at the problem. I'm taking, yeah, I'm taking all that stuff on top of the other stuff I'm taking, like that was left over or I can get my hands on and drinking. So Hey guys, got five quick things for you this week. One, please share this episode around with your friends. Two, as always, please be sure to subscribe to YouTube if you haven't already subscribed. Three, please leave a like and comment on the video. That is a huge, huge help in the algorithm. Four, over on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star review. That's a huge help over on those platforms, and I appreciate everyone who has done that already. And finally, five, the Patreon is almost ready. We are going to be launching in the next week or two, so please keep your eyes out as that is going to hopefully be a very, very good driver to be able to fund this show. Thank you. It was about 2011, like, 
it only been a month or two, a couple months. I don't remember the date, but it was in a, about 2011. I decided to take my own life. And that was my first time that I ever actually acted on it or I, that I can remember having suicidal ideation where I was like, I just want to check out. There's no, I've tried everything. I've tried working out three times a day, tried drinking, like medicating. Shit's not getting better. It's only getting worse. I don't understand what's going on. So I, I put plastic up in my bathtub, you know, like a like a shower liner because I had a really nice bathroom. And I'm a conscientious suicidal guy. <laughs> I don't want somebody to, like, ruin someone's day. Like, hey, well, this guy plastered his face all over on the ceiling. That's, what a dick. So I put the plastic up and decided I was like, this is, this is it, dude. I'm going to. I'm going to end my life, you know? And I it was probably about, if I remember right, it was in the morning, probably around 10. And I'm sitting on my couch. I have my pistol in my one hand. And <clears throat> I said, screw the plastic. I'm just going to fucking do it in my, my living room. My back was to the door, and I had a fifth and the other kind of like Jim Morrison. I was, like, drinking and <laughs> trying to get the courage up to, like, smoke myself. And I, 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 had, I had it, too. And um, it was probably... I didn't really reference this until about a year ago, maybe, that, that I'm aware of with, with my buddy Ron. But somebody had called my buddy Ron and said, hey, man, Chris is in a bad state. And I don't even know how. I was probably because I was drinking, like, every day, all day. And everyone knows I'm a workout freak. And they're like, well, what are you doing? And I think it was my old CFO who lived in my neighborhood. I'd go over there and just drink, you know, like he was working. <laughs> I wasn't even working at that time. And so I had my pistol, one hand, fifth in the other. And I'm fucking, I'm literally in the process of putting the gun in my mouth and my doorbell rings. <laughs> and I'm like, who the fuck? Like, I'm isolated. I have no friends. Everyone's gone. Ron was back in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, John's dead. My wife left. I literally had nobody, nobody around and I had John's wife. I'm not going to burden her with my garbage. She's got plenty to deal with. So I'm like, do I get the doorbell or what? So I, I decided if I put my pistol down, I go to the door and I'm already like half in the bag. My buddy's like Ron, Ron standing at the door with bags in hand. I'm like, what the hell dude, what are you doing here? He goes, you look like shit. I was like, I feel like shit. He goes, well, get dressed. We're going out. I said, where are we going? He's like, the bar. <laughs> and we joke about it as being the worst intervention ever, right? I'm like, dude, I'm already drunk. He's like, well, I don't care. He's like, he didn't know what to do, you know? And he's just like, but that day saved my freaking life, dude, 100%. Um, that was my, I, I don't know if it was divine intervention or I, I don't know. It was the weirdest situation. But he so, flew in from Tulsa, Oklahoma to see you. Didn't, didn't to let me there. know. I had no idea he was coming. If it was been maybe 15 minutes later, I might have been dead. I would have been dead because um, I was committed. And you didn't tell him this till a year ago, you said? Yeah. So what happened was a weird situation. I went through this nonprofit. I, I linked up with through a, a buddy of, of mine, uh, Andy Lang, who's in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He's a retired SF guy um, from uh, Fifth Group. He introduced me to these guys. And... You know, they, they basically pair veterans with songwriters that are suffering mm. and they find that 
people, if they're not willing to talk to a therapist, they just talk to a songwriter, they take their experience, whatever that might be, difficult time they went through, traumatic event, and they'd make it into a song. So I was like, oh, I'm going to memorial Ron's friendship and like surprise him with this. I'm going to all get like, you know, Aaron Lewis to, to, to sing this thing. It's going to be rad. In my head, I'm thinking this is going to be fun and cool. <laughs> I'm thanking him for, because it wasn't just this one event that Ron saved my life. He saved my life. I had a gun in my mouth over a hundred times a year for 10 years. Like I was suicidal up to this year. The last time I have, it's probably January where I was like, you know, like the ideation finally, I put in the work, but it took me 10 years to figure it out. So that's why I employ everyone, I implore, I say, hey, if you're a veteran that's struggling, go deal with it, dude. Like now, don't let, don't waste 10 years of your life like I did. I was super productive. I mean, I had a great career somehow. I grinded through it and, and I was resilient. But don't wait freaking 10 years, man, like to deal with it because eventually you're going to lose. The only reason I got help, I felt so much guilt and shame that Ron had saved my ass for 10 years, calling him drunk at two in the morning. Like, hey, bro, you've been a good friend. Like, I shoot him a text and he's like, what the hell? Like, so then he'll call me over and over again until he gets hold of me or calls like my wife and I'm, you know, I'm at the brink. So I hadn't told him about this situation at this time. And I was like, man, so they partnered me up with this, this songwriter and they, they, she, she starts talking to me and we're filming her for my documentary. It was like, they had cameras on and I'm like, it kind of j- jacked me up, you know, cause I thought it was gonna be a fun thing in my head. And so I talked about this incident that I'm talking to you about in detail. And it was like, I had to, it was the hardest thing I've had to do. Probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to go out there. And I basically surprised him, you know, I had the film crew up and I wanted to to really thank him. And I couldn't do it emotionally. I couldn't write down the words. I'm like, how am I going to, like 12 years, it's been 10 to 12 years of him being in my corner all the time. So if I understand this correctly, though, you have it, – it's a it's a professional songwriter, so someone who writes for major artists yep. comes to visit you, and you're just sitting with them for hours and telling your story. And well, I did a VTC, and I did tell it like – so she would just ask me questions. But it was almost like a freaking therapy session, man. Yeah, and like completely. two days later, she sends me the first revision, like written lyrics – and song holy shit and i could only read two two lines and it jacked me up i've only listened to the song four times ever. who ended up doing it well she did it was becca ray so she's her husband was actually an operator mm. so i was like oh that's cool she's gonna kind of get the you know she's been through she probably heard crazy stories because this guy was you know been around and like the, the the songwriting process, she nailed the lyrics. Like I only changed like one thing when I re- did a red line on it. It was like exactly everything I said, but like in a song, I was like, oh, "This is crazy." It was, but it was super dark. So I made Ron read these lyrics. Like you know, part of the documentary is my healing process. Was like, "Yo, dude, I just want to appreciate you as a friend. Like you've been like, how how the hell am I ever gonna thank this guy enough? Like we, we've been through part of the documentary you're making. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll and I don't know, okay. you know, but I, I slid this over to him, and I was like, I, I can't read it. So I made him read it, and he couldn't read it. It was just like, it's pretty powerful, man. I never believe really give much. I don't think it's for everybody, but it forced me to to talk to him about stuff I didn't want to talk to him about. 
And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the, you know, obviously that's part of the process. You know, you got to talk. What I'm getting and, and what's pretty clear about this is, is that you, from my angle, obviously a, an enormous line in your sand was that year where you lose John, your wife leaves you, you lose your job, you go into this dark place and everything. And like you said, you had had the hypervigilance before then as well. But, you know, a, a lot of guys do talk about later onset PTS or the things that can come with that or are part of that family of issues, be it the anxiety you speak of and, and things like that. But do you think that because you you kind of never turned it off, like you you just didn't take a job again, that's how it ended? You didn't Once you were back from <clears throat> Israel, like you didn't take another one, but you got right into the – it's like you're boom, 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 boom. You're kind of still in the fight. And then the minute you're forced to have to step back, leave the job, your best friend's dead. And then your wife leaves you and everything. Now having to deal with all that suddenly makes you have to relive the things you did and think about it in a new light. And almost like in in a sick way, like that self-fulfilling prophecy of now making yourself face it and and starting to, to feel these things to get yourself to a point where you spend all these years struggling with almost nonchalantly and not that it's nonchalant but almost seemingly the way you describe it nonchalantly with like suicidal ideation yeah and what's weird about it is it for me i didn't realize till just recently last two years there was always a pattern so anxiety was 24 7 365 but when it got unmanageable for me from what i noticed about myself like reflecting was when it became unmanageable, that would lead me into depression, like a depressive state. So I wasn't depressed all year round. It was like a cycle. And it continued on, depending what was going on. If I had downtime, that's when things like, and I think that was why this was a catalyst. Not only did I have all these crazy things happen in a short period of time, which probably like threw fuel on the fire with some post, you know, pre-stuff. Um... But it was like when I had that kind of the purpose was taken away, at least temporarily, and I couldn't get back in the fight like right away because I was trying to figure out which way's up. Mm. So I probably took about six months. And what I found, I continued to get these super stressful jobs where the world's on your shoulders. You got to work countless hours. And I think that was a, a way subconsciously that I I dove into work really hard. Like I ran another armored vehicle company for Jankel, um, Jankel Armoring, which is in Greenville, South Carolina. I did that for about five years, and then I had an opportunity to, to take me to where I'm at now in Atlanta to run a. It's more like it was a small ten million dollar company, but it was very important and strategic. We, we were about a half a billion dollar company at that time. It was called Bay Defense, and they brought me in to be a turnaround expert. So I knew it was going to be a shit show, you know, like. The business that I was taking over was going to be a mom and pop situation and they wanted to aggressively grow this thing. So I knew this was like, oh, that's running my wheelhouse, man. It's chaos. Like I got to manage chaos. Mm. So by managing other people's chaos, I was sidelining my stuff and not dealing with it. But 
it didn't really become unmanageable. Like I had panic attacks at work and things like that. I just learned how to cope with those things. How would that come on? Like just out of like, nowhere completely? Initially it was like, it could be a, around, you know, the people that acquired our first company. I was like, oh man, these guys could fire me. You know, it's like, you don't know what their angle is. And I'm used to my boys and the brotherhood. You know, if somebody has a problem with you, they're going to talk to you face to face. They're not just going to cut your legs out. And then it got to where I was just briefing my own subordinates was not comfortable. And I was like, this is weird. These guys work for me. I'm their freaking boss. Like, I'm the baller here. Like, why Why am I nervous? And it got to a, you know, like I couldn't be around my own team. And then it got to a point where I was uncomfortable by myself. And I was like, okay, this is, there's something going on, man. Like, this is not normal. But it took me for a while. It took, this took a long time for me to come to that realization. Like, I would avoid a lot of social gatherings like that were important for work mm. you know if we had a black tie or something i was like oh, heaven forbid i had to have a speaking engagement i was like i stayed away from that till this year so <clears throat> yeah it was a weird time so from when john you know like 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 you mentioned that was kind of the catalyst i had all these crazy things happen at one point my buddy Ron does great intervention and like saves me from committing suicide. And then I was like, but you said, I just, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you mentioned that was what, like 2012, something like that. Yeah. 2011. So two, yeah. So the, that yeah, intervention so happens 2011, but you still dealt with, with looking at a gun. Yeah. For 10 years, times man. a year for 10 years, yeah, maybe it wasn't hundred, I mean, but a lot, yeah, a, lot was a lot, whatever dude. it was. <laughs> I, I didn't really. It sounds so silly, but like, you know, diving into my own, th this situation, like when you're doing, doing that, I was asked by a therapist once and she's like, when I finally did it. Like I finally agreed to go to a therapist after like 11 years, I think it was like year 11. And, uh, cause I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to end up doing this, man. I'm, I'm, she's like, well, how often are you drinking or on a substance when you've got a gun in your mouth? I'm like every fucking time. Mm. Every fucking time. She's like, okay, dummy. Like, well, you can't be drinking. Simple. You can't just not do that, though. I, mean. I know. And so what, what she, what, what we, we kind of came to the conclusion was like, well, you know, most suicides, like over 80% of suicides are when people are typically on alcohol, but yeah. something's in their system. For me, I didn't go, I went cold turkey for a couple months, you know, and I was like, I, I'm never going to drink again. And I'm like, well, I got to make sure that I enact discipline, you know, for me, not everybody's the same. Some people have to go cold Turkey and can never go drink another drop because it'll go off the rails. And, um, for me, I might have one or two drinks with like socially, but then I'm like, all right, I'm not going to go drinking a fifth, you know, or a half yeah. a fifth. Like I know where the problems I'm starting to figure it out, but the best thing to do is hundred percent abstinence, man, to stay away from freaking alcohol. If you're depressed or even close to it, you just got to like find a way not to drink and not to take substances they are going to kind of make your lows lower. But you, so you, at some point, obviously you are talking to a psychiatrist and you weren't concerned about losing your, you, you, you lost the concern of losing your top secret, whatever. Yeah. What happened was I was, um, meaning you were honest with her. Yeah. In 2019 in September, I was, uh, coming back from a trip from Milan with a client. I was protecting a, like, you know, an individual, um, and we were over in Milan 
and it was probably like, I don't know, four to five months previously, I had a little bit of a pain in my hip. I was like, ah, that's nothing. It's probably a sports injury. I was doing jujitsu every day. I was like 230 pounds. I was lifting all the time. I was like really good, really fit. And I was like, ah, I probably tore something in my labrum. So I came home from that trip and it only happened intermittently. But because a lot of my friends from the early days in Iraq have been getting sick, I would, you know, mm. they misdiagnosed me initially. I got an MRI out of pocket. The radiologist called me within a half an hour. He's like, hey, bro, I've been doing this 25 to 30 years. I, I don't even know what's wrong with you. I have never seen this before. And I was like, okay, that's bad. So I go in the hospital for five days. Long story short, they misdiagnosed me. They said, oh, you have a bone infection. I stuck a, you know, they did a fine needle aspiration into my hip, Ooh. into my femur. They missed or didn't do it properly. So, and they were worried about whatever, probably, you know, malpractice. So yeah. I got a second opinion. I went to this shout out Dr. Riot Pudi, and she's an infectious disease doctor. And I said, look, all my friends are getting sick. They're getting weird cancers and uh, just weird diseases in general. So I, I want a second opinion. She goes, well, I'm going to send you to an ortho-oncologist. We're going to do – they're going to have to do a bone graft. That was my first real procedure after that fine needle aspiration. What is that comprised of? So they went into my right hip to my femoral head where it sits up into your pelvis, like in your pel pelvic girdle, like where the ball sits into the joint. And they scraped the bone away, and then they, they patched it. Mm. And they said, basically, for six weeks, you can't. there's no load bearing. I had to be on a walker. And they said, you know, once that's healed up, you'd be good to go. Week later, they called me, and I didn't think I was going to be good to go anyway. So, And you meant – I'm sorry. You mentioned this. I just want to make sure. It, you you were – at this point, you're, you're remarried, right? You have the yeah. second wife. So okay. I've been with my, my, uh, my uh, wife, Jen, for nine years. She's been putting up with me. So, so in the middle of all this, she's oh, been yeah, there for man. you. That's amazing. Nine years, dude. On the uh, the mental health stuff, I try not to be a – I just kind of self-centered um, all this stuff. Like I don't really – you know, I try not to outwardly show it too much, you mm -hmm. know. I try to mask it as best I could, but obviously she knows when there's some bad things going on. But Yeah, sure. So, so you get a call about this graft a week later. Yeah, so I actually called the doctor. It was a, literally a week after I just had – a bone graft, which is pretty gnarly. I don't know, like 15 staples in my upper hip. And they're like, you can't walk on it because it could break. Because my bone was so compromised, um, it was so eaten away that my femoral head was getting close to snap. And they said, if you snapped oh. it, if, one, it would be very painful. Oh, two, like and I was leg thing. pressing like 1,000 pounds. Oh. Like I was doing these crazy workouts and jujitsu, all the things you don't want to oh. do when you have a compromised femur. But... uh so I called the doctor. I said, hey, what about that uh, that biopsy you guys did? You guys were going to do a biopsy. They're like, oh, you have cancer. And that's how I – Just like that. <laughs> it was so matter of fact, the PA on the phone, she's like, oh, yeah, you got cancer. I'm sure you have questions. I'm like, uh, yeah. What? Like what kind <laughs> of cancer? She's like, oh, it's super rare. It's like let, <laughs> let, let, you know, less than 1%. They laugh at it, but that's kind of funny. <laughs> it was, oh, it's like super rare? You know, it's like less than 1% of 1% of all cancers. It's like less than 1% of 1%. I can't even do the math. So there's no like grave, like, oh my God, you need to come in. It's like, yeah, well, no. it's actually 1% of 1%. She's like, so. no, and I'll tell you what, this is going to make it even funnier and fucked up. So I'm like, I called them. She's like, oh yeah, you have cancer. It's pretty advanced. I was like, oh, pretty advanced. 
So I'm going to fucking die? Is that what you're saying? She's like, well, no, you're going to need a bunch of, you know, uh, surgeries. So anyway, I go into like, I'm like, okay, I kind of process. I told my wife, I wasn't surprised. I was actually like, yeah, prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Roll with it, dude. So I go to the same surgeon who did the first one. He's like, well, now we got to take your femur out. The work I just did, we're going to, we're going to cut you. We're going to do about 150 staples from your, pretty much your hip. We're going to remove your right uh, hip, your femur, about three quarters of it. Then while I'm laying on the table, they decided I needed to have some gluten quad come out, which is not, wasn't in the conversation until I was laying on the table. I was like, wait, what? Like how much quad? Like that's important. I like my butt cheek. So it was December 3rd. I had my uh, right hip glute quad and femur taken out and they put something metal in there yeah so they replace it with titanium so when i go into the console i just had the the bone graph and i'm talking to the surgeon i said well what's the surgery like he's like well it's called a brutal and radical surgery and i'm like well you said it like that dude it sounds really bad he goes oh it's bad because i i made a joke i i shook his hand and i said oh sorry man that's your money maker i, I don't want to like bruise your your very valuable hands and he goes dude you should see this. It's like a, it just gave me the visual of like the Saul movies. He's like, there's nothing like dainty about what I'm about to do to you. <laughs> like he was so brutal. Like when he said brutal and radical, it was, man, I've had a lot of, I've had some serious injuries and this thing, I would, I wouldn't wish it on a, my enemy, man. So they <laughs> take bad. out your entire femur and take your pull. leg pretty much off. Like it's just, there's nothing. I mean, they take your, they take your leg out of the socket. They they're using sawzalls. I mean, it's. I wish I had a video of it. How, I I'm glad you don't. <laughs> but how, how's like how long did this take? I think it was like five hours. That's it for that Didn't one. It, maybe six. Well, I mean, like they're just short. like they're, just hacking away. And then they got a crate. You know, they take your femur out and somehow I don't know how they do all that with making your. They do it while you're under. Had your cancer metastasized to other areas at the time? So the belief is now. So last summer, I had that surgery. I had to learn how to walk again. Then I got MRSA. Jesus Christ. Yeah, dude. And How'd you get MRSA? From the surgery. Cause, because it's a it's a it's such a big site. I mean, you're cutting, you're filleting your whole quad. Yeah. To your, you know, it's just... So it only takes a little piece of something. So I knew what you I I've done jujitsu for a long time for a sport. And um I knew what staff looked like in MRSA, thank God. Because I saw I had a hundred What does it look like? It looks like a little zit, you know? Usually it'll just look like a little bump. It looks like it's totally benign looking. You're like, oh that's nothing, dude. So I had it on the very bottom of my incision where I had a drain. And, you know, I have a railroad track. It's like that long, you know, like, so this is one little red spot. So I told my wife, I said, hey, does this look like staff to you? She goes, man. So we circled it. And I said, well, if it gets bigger by tomorrow. And that was the second time I almost lost my leg. Um, I went in the next day. It was on Monday. And I went back to the infectious disease doctor, Dr. Rayapudi again. And she saved my, my life again. By starting me on DAPTO and all the antibiotic regimen, I did that for three months. I got needles in both arms for three months straight because I didn't. I wanted to work out, so I'd pull these things what? out. You're thinking about working out this whole time, <laughs> yeah. And then right, Savage. the last week, dude, COVID hits. 
I'm in infectious disease. I'm having all this antibiotics pumped into my body my like third month and COVID the, the weirdness of COVID sets and everyone's wearing masks and I'm like, what is going on? Jesus. So yeah. Anyway. So last summer, the first place that this cancer, it's called chondrosarcoma. It's a subset of sarcoma. So sarcomas are less than 1% of all cancers. Chondrosarcoma is less than 1% of that. So super rare. It starts in your bone. It's a slow grower. You can have it for 10 years before it presents. It just starts well, that, eating things away. Yeah. So it kind of, that's why I think there's correlation, but. And you said, not to get you too off track, but you had said a bunch of your buddies were getting weird shit who were over there with you. Yeah. And that's kind of what we, I've had, and they've all died. There's only two of us now that are, well, three of us that I'm aware of that are sick that haven't died. I'm sorry to hear that. So it's kind of like. But it's good in the sense of I've been trying to tell other people that have been in the same environments at the same time, hey, could be wrong, but just make sure you do your blood work every year, screening. Um, and if you feel something coming on, like a pain that's unusual, just jump on it, man. Don't be, don't, you it know. It happens so fast. It, it, so it fast. does. It does. Like what kinds of, what kinds of things were you exposed to I, I mean i obviously i think a lot of people did have a chance to hear recently because of the whole bill going on in washington about the burn pits and all that which basically like burning crazy trash waste and everything but like was it that was it other things as well like what, what I'm, was I'm fairly i'm fairly convinced that it has to do with oh <clears> three <throat> and oh four being in the environment in iraq that's my just my gut never be proven one way or another probably but there was depleted uranium rounds and you know we're searching bunkers and tunnels the air quality is bad to begin with but then you're like you said there's burn pits i mean it's like the perf perfect storm for cancer like the radios the i mean there's just so many different factors um that could come into play. So what specifically, I have no idea, but that environment was just, you know, prone to lung issues and cancers and all that nonsense. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. But I would do it again. <laughs> I would. <laughs> you have such a good, like, no bullshit, this is simple, dealing with what I got to deal with attitude about things. And I know some of that's got to be you being strong on on the outside and being a human being on the no, inside. Man. I mean, I guess you got to achieve it to believe it or believe it to achieve it. I don't know. No, I mean, that's just my mindset now is I was asked on another podcast. A guy said, Hey bro, like if you didn't have, if you weren't diagnosed with cancer, would you be doing what you're doing now? I said, no, I probably wouldn't be man. Cause I'd probably be thinking of myself, which is kind of twisted because my life expectancy could be six months. I could be dead a year. I'm definitely not going to, live to be an old man that's for sure but i'm gonna try i'm gonna try my damnedest but he said well, would you change it if you could and i said no no i wouldn't i would take stage four right now because i'm i'm helping through you know different different ways i'm helping either inspire motivate or hopefully encourage people with mental health issues like to start a dialogue and 
I want to raise awareness. I want to destigmatize the whole topic of mental health, especially with men, because the way I was raised, men didn't talk about their feelings and it was weakness and perceived. And, you know, I don't care about any of that. I have the freedom now to say, you know what? If you don't like what I'm saying, go do something else, man. But the people that are struggling that listen to me, they understand that I know about their struggles. Like I've been there, man. And it's not weakness for men to talk about their feelings, yeah. you know? And there was, you know, it means a lot coming from a guy like you too, by the way, like it means, <sighs> it means something extra. Well, that's what there's other guys that I've talked to that are legends, man. Like legends, like I have a, a cool, cool career and hopefully, you know, I can leverage that for helping other people. Like in the sense that they go, man, you've done some pretty cool stuff and he's talking about it. So maybe I'm not, a, I'm not weak if I talk about it, you know? And I had two two people that were legends in the uh, – I don't want to drop their names because they're kind of private people. But they had mental health issues and they're legends, man. Like dudes, like tier one guys, meaning like, you know, some of the best operators. And, you know, 20, 30-year careers. But they opened up about their mental health issues to me. And I was like, man, maybe I'm not being a little bitch. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And – it's not. It's like I watched this UFC fight a couple of months ago with Patty the Batty. I forget what his real name is. And he had one of the most prolific. I put it, put it posted it right up on my Instagram. Oh, yeah. I, I watched that shit live, man. So he was weighing in for the fight. And he got a call that his buddy committed suicide. And he just went through a war that, you know, you know, whatever, a fight. Um, And... The shit that he said was just like, man, I'd rather have me mate crying on my shoulders than be going to his funeral in a couple of days. He's like, there's a stigma out there that men can't talk. And he's like, just talk to someone, talk to anybody. It was like one of the fucking coolest things, man. Yeah. I want to play this real quick and put it in the corner of the screen. If you hear a skip though, and it's not playing, that's because it's copyrighted and I can't put it in here and you can look up the video. It's called Patty Pimblet's powerful message after winning at UFC London. It's posted by ESPN on YouTube. But if we're staying on right now, we stick this in our ears and let's listen to this. This was fucking awesome. I want to dedicate this fight to little baby Lee, little warrior. Like more of a fighter than any of us will ever be. But also, I woke up on Friday morning at 4 a.m. to a message that one of my friends back home had killed himself. This was uh, five hours before me weighing. So, Ricky, lad, that's for you. But... There's a stigma in this world that men can't talk. Listen, if you're a man and you've got weight on your shoulders and you think the only way you can solve this is by killing yourself, please speak to someone. Speak to anyone. People would rather, I know I'd rather me make cry on my shoulder than go to his funeral next week. So please, let's get rid of this stigma and men start talking. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fucking yeah. awesome to hear that. Yeah, that that one little. It's funny, man. Like people that have a platform or the ability to reach a lot of people, 
that's what it should be doing, man. He's not talking about his new Benzo or, you know, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to go get this. And, you know, my after party's at that. Like, this is real, man. That, at least that one clip, as soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, he freaking nailed it. And I posted it up. It thousands of views, man. I was like, yeah, man. Because people know authentic shit when they hear it. They do. You know? They do. And, I, I mean, for you, though, it's like, you're you're leading by example but you're also leading through that struggle i i can't remember if we were talking right before the podcast began or if it was on the podcast so apologies if this is repeated from the beginning but you had said something to me like jokingly like you call yourself a professional sufferer <laughs> yeah man and and you don't mean it in the sense that like oh look at my suffering look at my pain you look at <laughs> <No>. it like <laughs> you look at it like i'm a professional <laughs> sufferer because i learned how to deal with this shit and fucking and make the most out of it yeah, no, I, I joked about it like early when I just started doing this. I was like, I guess I'm a fucking professional sufferer because when I condensed my story, I'm like, yeah, I was an SF dude, went worked for OGA, and then I went through a bunch of shit, almost you know, mental health for ten years, suffered, and then I went through cancer surgery after cancer surgery. You know, I've got like a single digit life expectancy for a very short period of time, and I don't look at my life with the bad stuff though i look at it like i was super successful i don't know how and i i grinded through all the adversity it's the only reason i'm still here but i thought i was gonna lose that's what led me between my my buddy ron wearing him out feeling the guilt and then the second part was like i needed a clear head i was like i'm gonna end up doing this man like i can't i like there's so many times i've taken slack out of my i have a glock you know and that's the only way I never left suicide notes and none of that. I was just like, I need an out, you know? And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm talking a pound of pressure and I'm totally annihilated with a, you know, and, and I had to freaking end lives. And I'm like, I'm going to fuck this up. And, uh, you know, one part, of, like at those times, I'm not thinking about, like, I don't really want to die. I'm like, I definitely want to be out of here, dude. And I'm still fighting. There's a part of me in there that's like clawing and scratching to survive. Like, and I just knew that I would eventually lose it. I lose that fight. And I didn't want to do that to my buddy Rob. I didn't want to do it to my wife, our 18 year old. Like, that's fucked. So when I have those moments of clarity, I'm like, I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to, you know, um, I started doing therapy. I, I was only, when? Um, it was about, it hasn't been two years, but close to it. Um, it was well, right, right after I was diagnosed. Um, when did the conversation happen? Cause y- you explained a lot in there yeah. a few minutes ago with like the surgery and everything. But when did, when did you sit down, not with the lady on the phone, but with the, what was her name again? Your doctor? Uh, with Dr. Rayapudi? Doctor, yeah. I don't want to say it wrong. Dr. Rayapudi. Awesome. Like when did you sit down and have the conversation where she says to you, we're going to prolong your life as much as possible, but this is going to kill you. Yeah. The, the docs never come out with it, which is irritating. Cause I'm like, you can tell I'm more like, Hey, let's just rip the bandaid off. Tell me where we're at. And I, I'll adjust fire just fine. And that's how I've been living my life. Like I'll give you a snapshot of like insanity, not for, cause you say the professional sufferer. <laughs> like I joke about it. Like some of the adversity in the last six months of my life. Right was one, I was diagnosed as stage four cancer. Um, it's non-operable, non-treatable. I had my lung taken out 
a week before that, before I got the news, the official news, I knew since last summer that I was stage four because things presented in my lungs, but they had to do a biopsy and it was too dangerous. And then when they did a biopsy earlier in this year, they missed. So it didn't give us any clarity like you're like from a clinical perspective, I didn't have a diagnosis. There's not anything I could do about it. So I just had it in the back of my head. I'm like, yeah, you're fucking stage four, bitch. So you better buckle up because life's going to get real, real quick. So as soon as I had the um, surgery, they did a biopsy. This is when? September? September 20th this year. So it was only a couple months ago. And they're like, all right, dude, number one, you're stage four. You're terminally ill. You're going to die from this. There's no treatment. Besides more and more surgeries to keep you alive. And how much of your lung did they take out? Well, they took out my lower right lobe. So they told me about 20% of my lung capacity. So it's actually not, I don't notice a huge difference now. It was like the first couple of days I was like, I was getting gas to walk 10 feet, you know? And I was like, how far can I walk? They're like, far as you want. And I was like, all right. So the day I got out, I got out of the hospital in two days. They said it was going to be five. I walked two and a half miles the the afternoon I got home and I just got after it, dude. You know, I was like every day I was walking three miles a day or more. And I, it's a pain to walk for me, like literally and figuratively with my, my, my hip. It, you know, I do it every day, even though it causes a lot of pain, but I know it's what I need to do because I don't want to be like some sad sack just sitting around and <clears throat> going oh i've got cancer and i could and that's kind of the, the the weird thing with what i got in my mindset is people are like why do you work out all the time you're always in pain like yesterday i left the gym and i had a great workout dude i was like i felt strong, strong. what kind of workouts are you doing well now i can't do functional fitness like i've always been a functional fitness guy i'm a big believer in like as a modality it's one of the best things you can do so if you're gonna if you come into a situation in life, fight or flight, you got to fight, you know, car wreck, whatever, your functional strength is where it's at. And you're well-rounded. You have good cardio, you got strength, you've got fitness, agility, all those things. Well, with the hip, I, I can't, I can't, I had to give up jujitsu in 2019. That was rough. And I thought about going back, but I'm like, if I dislocate this, I, I might lose my leg. So I was like, and yeah, I, I don't, do. I don't have enough structure there. <clears throat> it gets very hip intensive. So I just said, all right, I got to readjust my goals. So I was like, I'm going to do strength training, which isn't the best from a health perspective. But I was like, I want to at least look and feel good. And I want to get after it and, you know, do everything I can do in the gym. So I do some functional fitness. Um, I just started doing the aerodyne bike again, one of my most dreaded enemies. <laughs> I hate it. In 10 minutes, you can just blast yourself your, to, your, to death you know, riding that bike. But, um, yeah, so I just do mostly strength. You know, I do five days a week. I, I, I lift. It's all mostly static. I was going to say, you're yoked. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying, like, and I, I, I said, hey, the day I got home, I told my wife, I said, man, I want to put like 10 to 15 pounds back on, man. I want to like, <laughs> I want to look good, good on man. A plan. Like, I want to keep stage four looking sexy, man. Like, wow. You know, because it makes me feel better. Even though I'm in pain all, all night, I pay for it. The next day, I just feel better, and I look better, and I feel like, you know, I don't know. It's a good mental – from a mental perspective, the gym's always been my my therapy, you know. Um, it's the best thing ever, man. 
you got to get after it, man. You know, you got to take care of your mind. There's different verticals in life. You got a financial vertical. You know, you want to make sure you're financially well off. You're not like living paycheck to paycheck, ideally. So you got to work on that. Get good mentors. You know, physical fitness. You got to work on that vertical as well. From a health perspective, you want to, dude. You, you might have to self rescue at some part of your life or protect somebody that can't protect themselves. Like get into fitness, man. If you feel like, you know, you want to lose weight or whatever your goal is, just do it. But then, you know, you have like the spiritual vertical. I'm not exceptionally strong there. I'm aware of it at least, and I'm working on that. You know, there's all those types of things. What do you that, mean you're not exceptionally strong there? Well, I've never been – I'm like a failed Christian. Like I, I try – you know, religion like has been difficult for me, especially with my experiences. It's a little more challenging. And I think when you grow up, like when my parents got divorced, I stopped going to church, mm. you know, when I was six. And – after that, it was kind of like, you know, it was kind of not not off the table, but I wasn't, I was six, seven years old. I'm not going to beg to go to church, right? Yeah. I was like, I don't want to be there. I don't like wearing a suit. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's just, um, I'm a very spiritual person, but organized religion is what kind of dissuades yeah, me. That's it's just a little, There's when there's people involved, Yeah. because I've seen the negative impacts of it, and I shouldn't be dissuaded by it, because I know there's probably a lot of Christian people or whatever the, their, their belief structure is, going, come on, bro, get your shit together. And I'm working on it because if anybody need like when you are facing death, that's when all the you start really thinking, giving yourself a hard think every now and then like, Hey man. And for me, maybe that's going to be the last minute, you know, you're sitting there going, mm, Oh, I hope I just didn't squander that opportunity. You know what I mean? I think I understand now. Cause what yeah. I was going to ask and well, I'll, I'll still ask it. Like you seem to associate directly spirituality with organized religion like one cannot exist without the other for the most part based on what you said and i'm not so sure that that's no fair that's, at all yeah i'm kind of yourself it's just the people that dissuade me are usually the ones that are like the most vocal um you know it's there's a lot of tenants and things like that, that just kind of has pushes me pushed me away from organized religion. Yeah, it's just a little more. Because uh, living in like Jerusalem is a good example, right? You have the Arabic population living next to the Christians, the Armenians, and the Orthodox. Like they're all mm -hmm. in this, and then you have the Jews. Like it's great. They're all like physically fighting at times. Yeah, but then if you bring up like Jesus, this is when I was like, if you bring up Jesus, it's like. How come the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is still there? Mm. And they're like, well, when the Muslims took over, they believe in Jesus, Jesus was a prophet. And the Christians believe Jesus was the Messiah. And the Jews believe he was a prophet, but he wasn't the Messiah. <laughs> so, but they all, so there's all these intertwined and interwoven things, but they all believe they're 100% right on these little, yes. like, you know, the things that are, I say small, but they're huge implications but i'm like if i was born you know in another country i probably would be it could be muslim sure. i could be this you know. and and it's like you're the product of the environment that you're born into that you don't get to choose but i mean i always say this i i, I do think most people 
use organized religion for beautiful things. And I, yeah. I, I think that's amazing. And so when what, what I don't ever want to be is like a basher of people's beliefs and things like that, no. I, I think that's a terrible, terrible thing. I personally, in my relationship, like, I, you know, I grew up Catholic and everything, but like, you know, there, there's aspects of things that I've come to learn and know that, yeah, I, I think whatever it is, whether it's 10% or 5%, there's a small percentage of people in every organized religion that's ever existed, all of them, throughout human history, that use it as a means for power or a grab at power or straight up awful, evil, salacious means, and they they can ruin it for a lot of other people. So my relationship isn't really there with it, but like I keep this shit to myself. It's not like I don't feel like it's my duty to tell other people how I look at things exactly. If it happens organically, great, but I'm not going to go out of my way. What I will say is that like I have my own type of constant spiritual relationship with things that are going on and things that can't be explained that you know kind of give me like – a decent Zen. And, and I do try to, on my own time, pay attention to that. So when you're, yeah. when like, when I'm saying this, you know, not to like discount myself here, but like, you know, I'm, I'm a younger guy kind of going about knock on wood, like a, you know, all things considered good life at a good time in human history right now. But you're somebody who's also a younger guy, but you you're facing this impending end that you don't know the day it's going to be there you may not even know the exact year but it's staring at you down the barrel and i i can't relate to that because yeah. i've never had to deal with that and it's like to me what the way you're talking right now it strikes me like you are worried about not having some sort of hole filled with like the meaning of it all is that yeah fair? yeah it's, it's kind of well put you know because i I always stay away from that conversation because it can be super off-putting like my beliefs are my beliefs and everybody else's beliefs like i'm kind of in the same wheelhouse when it comes to it's such a hot button topic yeah so it's like if whatever i say is going to be like either misconstrued or misrepresented because i don't really have a good way to to really like explain i just know that it's something that i'd like to work on better i don't think there'll be a solution for it for me because I've, of all my experiences and exposure it's just more of a personal relationship than you know something i'm not going to gravitate towards organized religion um you know per se i i don't it's the people man <laughs> yeah. and i'll tell you one of the one of my biggest like oh, man this is such a cringy subject i'll kind of transition off of this one but ron's been my like so He's executive director of a of, of a, a camp that for a, it's a Christian day camp, and um, he's been he actually married my wife and I. He was mm. I was like, hey bro, you're my spiritual guy because he's a strong <laughs> Christian, and I'm like, man, I want to be a strong Christian. I'm just I suck at it. You know, like, maybe I got to put more work into that vertical. You know what I mean? Mm. So I'm kind of like, and I'm open to it, but there's always somebody who's like super like fringy. It's like sends me proverbs in the mail and i'm like okay dude too much that's too much for yeah. me man it might be where you're at i don't need to quote scripture to have a, a you know relationship you know what i mean yes yes i know exactly but do like, you feel that do you feel like a i hate to use this type of phrase here but like that ticking time bomb of pressure where it's like i don't though. what if i you don't but i'm not gonna say that 
I've seen people who have had time, like my father, my father died in 2017. I was by his side when he passed away. He was on hospice for a month. Mm. Super. What, what freaked me out about him is so strong. Like he was six two, and I don't mean physically. I just mean like mentally. I didn't know what what direction he'd be. He's always been like an A type, you know. He's a cop, and you know, g- growing up, it was kind of like it was interesting because seeing my own father being by his side, I carried him out of the house with a body bag with my little brother. I was like, I don't want no crib keeper doing this. My dad wanted to die in his house. He didn't want to be in a hospital. He didn't want to you be. You carried him out of the house. Oh yeah, dude, and. My dad wanted to be surrounded by his kids, and that's what we gave him. I said, 100%. So I resigned my last position before I got back into private security, which that was my last career, kind of the last couple of years. I um, I resigned and I went up there for a month and a half, I think it was. And it was a freaking great experience, man. I got to apologize to him for being like a shithead kid. I was like, man, he goes, what do you mean? I'm like, are you serious? You arrested me in high school. <laughs> like... People think that's an interesting story, and there's like 20 more of those, uh, you know. And so we had the closure, but he pulled the plug on himself like a week prior to him. Like he was on hospice, and he, they they gave him the option of no more food and drink because he had um, cancer. Uh, and it's gonna it's similar to mine. Um, he had lung cancer from smoking, but he actually started in his esophagus, and then it progressed to his lungs. So I know what this is going to look like, right? But in my head, I was always thinking, like, I wish I would have had that conversation, the philosophical, spiritual question, um, because he was kind of private. Like, he grew up strong Christian. Um, when he was younger, my grandmother was an elder in the church. But, you know, that's between him and, you know, his maker, you know. Like, I wish I would have had that conversation because I would have liked to heard his p- perspective. And maybe I won't even change, but. Everybody's kind of curious, man. When the lights go out, is that it? Are you 100% sure? you know anybody who died and came back? Because I don't. So there's always that little bit of like, you know, keep your house in order. And it's kind of leading me. I live by the same tenants. Like I, I am dedicating my life to helping other people right now. I was real worried you were going to say the nine ancestral tenants. <laughs> <laughs> don't let the – and hey, by the way – the freaking liver king, man. He totally screwed uh, up beards for dudes. Like, he got uh, it all crazy. Now I look like a homeless person. I'm sorry. I had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> if I could get that jack from eating liver, man, I'd be eating it right now. <laughs> yeah, that was like a serious one. I, I couldn't let that one go. Killing out. me, man. But yeah, so you were saying, I'm sorry again, but you were saying well, these, these specific I, tenets that aren't I, his tenets. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, man, where you need to focus on. I'm a big preacher of, pun intended, you know, you got to work on, I just bring it up because I know there's other people that spend a lot more time in these different verticals, right? And I tell people, I'm like, hey, man, if you want to progress, you got to make yourself uncomfortable. I've made myself uncomfortable in that vertical, man. Like, I've been to all sorts of churches. Blow your mind. And I probably need to focus more attention on it, but right now it's just, I'm kind of comfortable with where I'm at. You know what I mean? Which is weird. Are you or are you saying that? No, I, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what uh, what happens when the lights go out, man. But but when but when Chris Cathers isn't sitting in a podcast studio or fuck a podcast studio when when you're not sitting with your friends or with other people when you're alone in a room, which you know you're a human being that happens every week, obviously, like. 
you don't have some moments where you're asking questions like what what happens or like even like why me like what's what the fuck is going on here i don't know man like it's kind of like aliens man there's some people that believe in them and then there's some people that are like in the middle and then there's the the naysayers and um yeah i don't i don't think about it at all i'm not really worried about it because from my perspective i'm doing everything in my power like you know i've done some bad shit for sure but I've spent most of my life trying to, like, be a good human being, whatever that means. So, like, um, dude, I pull over old ladies on the side of the road. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't care about any of it. It's like if somebody needs help, I'm usually that that dumb, you know, guy that's like, hey, I'll help you out. <laughs> you know, oh, it's 99 degrees. I'll help you change your tire, you know. But um, that's the best I can do is just lead the best life that I can, you know, to be a good person and uh, give back and put some good vibes out there in the, on the, in the, in the world, you know, um, it's not for me to decide what happens to me. You know what I mean? Do you have tough days where the thoughts creep in where you're like, I just want to mail it in, you know, I don't, I don't Actually, fuck dude, this working out, fuck this, having to do all this shit. Like the, the, the inner bitch is what creeps in. Like, I don't think about any of that. I'm like, I know what's going to happen. It's going to be like, it could be, my whole life can go, you know, I'm just flowing like water, to be honest with you. Like, it's kind of like that Bruce Lee analogy. You got to like flow like water. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said with that. Because like, what I was going to tell you before is like in the last six months, man, I've never had biological children of my own. My wife, we found out she was like pregnant maybe about four or five, six months ago. And first of all, we weren't trying to have kids. We've been Your together nine years. Right now. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I did a Marcus Luttrell on you. I did that oh. on him too by accident. Cause so what happened was we found out she was pregnant and we knew she was high risk. And the news in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm like going to be 49 years old. I'm fucking stage four. Holy shit. And then I was like, she was all like, she didn't know how to handle the situation initially because it was, we we're both shocked. It was like, we did nothing different. You know, we were not trying to not have kids, but we just didn't assume it wasn't ever going to be possible. And lo and behold. So I, I was like freaked out because what freaked me out more than that last conversation was the fact that I was like, man, I don't want to leave her with a kid to take care of by herself. That's how she raised her son. And like she raises a single mom. It was super hard. She had him really young. So that's been in the back of her head. So I was like, go to her appointments. We get the sonogram. And like two weeks later, man, she loses the baby. And I'm oh. like, what the fuck? And that one really hit me hard because I couldn't do anything to take the pain away from her. You know, like she's still like February would be the due date coming up. And I was like, man. And, you know, then I was like diagnosed stage four. I had my lung taken out. And then she has a cancer scare. She just had one. Like she tested positive for the like, I hope I'm not violating her confidentiality, but I can take that. So, but you know, she, she has to have monitoring. So we're like, Oh, she might have to have surgery and all this stuff. And that's like, I'm just hitting the surface, bro. Of like the last six months through all that stuff. The one that got me was, you know, the loss of a baby man was just like, I didn't think it was going to like jack me up that much, but like, I just was like, look, dude, this is out of your control, man. Like, I, there was like two hours where I was just like, fuck. Like, 
what I don't like is that, that mentality that creeps in. I call it my inner bitch. Like I maybe I heard it on Rogan or something, but it's like, there's always these thoughts like, why me? Like, Oh, you know, I've already had, all, I've lost my, you know, my femur, my leg, my hip, my glute, my quad, my, now my lung. Now I'm stage four. I'm going to definitely die. Lost the baby. My wife, I might have cancer. Like, that's a lot of shit for anybody, but it's what you do with that information at the end of the day that's relevant. And you can just let life snap you or you can flow with it. Like kind of like, like water, you know, it's like you can't let these situations dictate like happiness is a perception. So I kind of learned like, man, yeah, I have, there's a couple hard days, but honestly, like doing what I'm doing right now and overcoming, like, like I had the best mental health this year. And it's because I put the work in for the last two years. I've been putting the work in. I go to therapy sessions every week. I've tried different, different things, but I think the most helpful thing was me openly talking about all these situations, like on podcasts, on radio and dealing with all these situations has been like probably the most beneficial thing for me. And not that everybody can do that, but, but you were still struggling. I mean, I'm just doing my timeline in my head based on what you're saying. So correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah. you were struggling all the way up until this year. So two years with with this disease, still struggling with the mental health of yeah. suicide and stuff like that. And yeah. and you're here. You know, it because it, to me, again, wow. I can only look from the outside. I don't understand, right? But I'm doing my best so that everyone listening right now can try to learn something from this. Like, you know, I would think if I had struggled and held it off for so long while dealing with all this shit, right? You, you're still feeling like shit all the time. You're not happy. You, you, you may have some happy points in your life. You've got a great relationship, things like that. But there's a lot of things that demons that are driving you. And then you get that, that ticket, whatever it is, where it's like, well, this is going to end anyway. And it's, it's going to be painful when it does. So why don't, you know, in your head, it's like, well, why don't we finally just get on with it then? And you didn't. And you're here to, to spread it's, good word to a lot of other people because of it. I think that thought, I've had that, that train of thought so many times of, you know, it was shortly after I was diagnosed in 19. I think it was 2020 is when I started, like, I got established for the VA for my uh, surgery because I had a lapse in uh, my health insurance in 2019. So I got established through the VA. I never thought one time to ever approach the VA. I don't even talk about it in the documentary we're doing because it's a, it's a, the, the divisive. Some people will be like, Hey, you know, they did all right by me. But a lot of people in the other camp will be like, dude, all they do is prescribe you freaking meds. It's all bullshit. Dudes kill themselves in the waiting room. Mm. I understand both. Cause I've seen both, but because I got my leg done, I was like, all right, I'm going to try this. Like this ther- therapy bullshit out, man. And I'm going to be diligent because what I've been preaching to people, I got to like, I got to be kind of taking the, the reins and, and lead by example, right? Is I'm like, how do you know unless you try? Mm. Now with what I've known in the last year of like diving into the subject matter on T, uh, TBI, CTE, you know, traumatic brain injuries, uh, PTS, um, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, all those things that are wrapped up. I tell people, I'm like, if you want to combat this, like guys don't want to talk about their feelings. I get it. But is it because 
what's what's the driver for that? Is it the way you're raised? Guys don't talk about the feelings that make you feel like you're weak. The hardest thing for you to do is to confront. I was like, if you're a warrior, you're going to get after it. If something's kicking your ass, you're going to fight back. So I reframed my brain. I said, dude, if you're a warrior, why don't you do something about this instead of wearing your buddy out for 10 years? Like that's a, that's not a manly way out to show my ass to my friend for 10 or 12 years. Should have done it earlier. Bit of a hypocrite, but that's how long it took me to figure it out. My public service announcement to people is like, don't do what I did. Jump on it earlier. It's not going to be easy. And what I've learned is there isn't a one-size-fits-all therapy or solution for PTS or, or, or uh, TBIs or addiction issues. You might have to try 15 modalities before you get it, but you just got to be willing to put in the freaking work and get after it and deal with it head on. That's manning up is dealing with the thing head on because it's super freaking hard, man. I have friends. I probably get calls three or four or five times a week. I've had several friends kill, commit suicide. I've had like um, two calls last week. One was a civilian. One was a f friend that I've worked with. And they're in the same spot fighting their demons. And I'm like, bro, you know, some people are still not willing. A lot of guys that I talk to, they're, they're kind of in that, like, dude, you got stabbed four times in the last two years. You got your head kicked in in front of a, in front of a liquor store because you're, you're an addict because it's, you know. But what kind of life is that, you know? Like, you got to get your shit together, and the only way to do it is to fight. Well, we also have an enormous... I mean, there's a lot of mental health epidemics in this country right now, to be frank, but one that has yeah. been around for a long time and does not seem to get better that I think, you know, we we have to really ask some hard questions as a society on is that you do see so many of our veterans struggling with suicide and not being able to transition back home. And it's like, okay, you're going you're gonna to send them to these endless wars for two decades, which I, I could sit here and argue a lot about that, and I will, and I have on other podcasts. But on the other end of it, like, okay, well, how do you, how do you, how do you take care of them better? And and like, at what point do, you know, you can't go anywhere in mainstream media without there being an emphasis on mental health. But at what point do you actually act on that for our, well, th this our, is our guys from it. the front line? Sure, this right absolutely. here, this is you know, my whole goal is to raise awareness then destigmatized by me openly talking about my own shit in front of everybody. It's like, Hey dude, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I've had a pretty good career. I've been very successful somehow and come th coming through the other side. Pretty damn good. I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm, I'm getting there and, but it, it requires a lot of work. And then I also want to be able to provide resources to people. There's a lot of places you can go if you're struggling I mean, you can just go on Google. There's 40,000 nonprofits in the United States over. And, you know, it does get a little complex, but that's why we started a 501c3 is to help directionalize and, and help people kind of not just navigate, but we want to help fund institutions that are actually treating veterans, get them help. But, um, and part of it's just talking about it, man, because people don't want to talk about suicide. They're, it's off-putting and i'm like 
Well, it never gets better unless you, you, you there's a problem. So, and I'll give you a good statistic. So, if you look from 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 today back to 9/11, 22 years. We had about 7,000 roughly, you know, not to the number, but 7,500 combat related deaths. Active duty and global war on terror veterans, active duty um, or global uh, uh, the global war on terror veterans, 34,000 suicides. Now, if you take 22 veterans a day, the, the current statistic, or 20 to 22, you're talking 150,000 suicides since 9-11. That's an epidemic of grave proportion. Who's talking about it? There's no, everyone's talking about, and they're fixated on all this. That's, I don't even know what the math would be, you know, just leaps and bounds above the combat related deaths, you know, and if you look at all the injuries, tens of thousands of people have been injured or amputees, but that those numbers are staggering. And there, there it's a multitude of issues. It's not just people can't hack it. it has nothing like my, my, my stuff is not from, I, my belief is no issue from being in firefights, getting blown up by IEDs. Mm. I don't think that has anything to do with it. I was not, there's two different types too. Like if you think about, it's complicated because you have people that have TBIs and then you have people with post-traumatic stress. And I like to call it post-traumatic stress injury instead of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that term and terminology is important because when I talk to people, I'm like, Hey bro, if you broke your leg, would you go to the doctor? They're like, yeah, man. I'm like, but if I say you have a mental disorder, dudes don't want to go. Mm. And I'm like, if I take your brain and put it into an MRI, you actually have a physical manifestation. Your fear center and your brain is over, you know, hard is working overtime. So why wouldn't you get that fixed? I can prove you have a injury of your brain. No different. But yeah, it's, it's just a, a conversation. Like it, it, I think this it's just uh it's a disservice to to so many people not to uh do something about it you know we we do live in a world where if you can't see it it's not that it doesn't exist it just makes it hard to understand for people like you know I'll use a totally different example that's that is just to like not to make a comment on it but to just explain how this could work in theory like you get mad when you hear about something going wrong with 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 a cop killing somebody you get way madder when you see it on video oh yeah right and so that same uh, marker within our psychology the same area i think also has something to do with how we treat our injuries and what you're referring to is our our mental injuries because I've I've heard and I'm not I'm way above my pay grade to really say much here, but you know I've heard things like there's brain scans that can show manifestations of like depression or things like that. So that that's or that's, if you have like a TBI, right? Like, so if you get blown up or you get in a massive car wreck and have a head injury, yes. like, but the problem is that PTS and TBI, the symptoms overlap, so yes. it gets super hard to treat when you have, hey, does this person have post traumatic stress? Like from, you know, kind of an experience or trauma, mm -hmm. or do they have a physical trauma 
Like they hit their head against a freaking uh, B pillar in a vehicle when they were crashing. And like, that's it. You can't tell. Like that's one you can physically see, and you still well, that's can't more sexy, tell man. which if one I it is. If I could pick and choose, I'd be like, man, I want a TBI, right. which I don't. Um, probably already have one, but um, it sounds more sexy. Like, yeah, man, I got blown up and freaking hit my head, and I'm kind of jacked up now. Okay, that seems acceptable. And but it's medically explainable. I can't even tell you how many horror stories I've heard of people with survivor's guilt. There's moral injuries, man. Like, I never knew what a moral injury was before. So if you have, like, there, if you look at um, post-traumatic stress, you can have some that are uh, fear-based. So you, a lot of people are assimilate, like, hey, man, guys have nightmares. They hear a loud, loud bank, uh, a loud... Uh, you know, noise or fireworks, you know, people talk about the 4th of July mm -hmm. and that's a fear-based response. So if you hear fireworks and you're like, oh, it takes me back to when I was, you know, I got blown up by a mortar round, you know, I was sleeping. Totally makes sense. But moral injuries is a whole nother category. So when you have strict moral codes as a, as a human being and you violate those or someone else violates them, you don't even have to be a participant. So I like to use the ones like Vietnam vets, like, um, this is a horrible – people have heard stories about war trophies, right, cutting off ears. Yeah. I think most people your audience would be like, okay, I've maybe seen it in a yes. movie. So that's a real thing, you know. Um, there's people – so say you're, you're in, in, your, in your unit, you're in Vietnam, your buddy's cutting an ear off somebody, and you're just watching – but you have a strong moral code, but you don't do anything. Maybe, maybe you're, you know, the other guy outranks you. Maybe he'll kick the shit out of you, you know, back in the day, if you say something. Prisoner's and, dilemma. Type yeah. Deal. yeah. And you, but you have this moral, you know, dilemma where you're like, and it might not bother you right away, but like maybe a couple of years later, and I'll give you a good, I have a friend of mine who had somebody draw a young girl, she's 12 years old ish. He's in Afghanistan. Girl draws an AK on him and his team. So he draws up on her and he's like, we don't kill women and children. You know, that's my mor my, my morality. Says I don't kill women, but she's a combatant. She's she, she, training a freaking AK on him from me to you. And he freaking doesn't do anything. Well, she shoots him in the, she misses, but hits him in the arm, almost takes his freaking arm off. His, his arm's hanging. So then he, he shoots her. Well, no issues. But then now he has a daughter who just turned the same age. Oh. Right? So people can kind of put it in perspective. Well, he loves his daughter. He doesn't kill women and children. And he had a ton. This individual had shot in the, the chest plate and the sappy plate. I mean, this is, this is one of a million different things. So you get these layers of things. And when you're trying to work this out, well, that's a moral I issue. From my perspective, that's a just shoot. She's a combatant. It's messed up situation, but it's you or her, and yeah. it's horrible. You don't want to make that call. I might be good with it, but maybe he's not because I didn't have a daughter that's 12 years old. And maybe that fired some shit, you know, in his brain, and it might not have on mine. So everybody's – it's so complex, these situations. But I think that gives the audience, like, a moral injury is, is shame or guilt-based. It's not a fear and that's what I believe I had because I work for this company. And there's other things that I don't want to talk about, you know. Um, but um, I'm an open oh, book. Oh, okay. Okay. Wait, wait. Now I kind of understand. But take, like me back to there, I have super – like my buddies 
my friends are all that is important to me. The guys on the left and the right of me, like I will do, like my buddy Ron, if he asked me for a kidney tomorrow, you wouldn't want mine because it's probably all jacked up (laughs) (laughs) if I got cancer in it. (laughs) But I would do anything for him, man. And he knows that. If he calls me at three in the morning and I got to fly across the country, sell my house for that dude. And I believe he'd do the same for me. But when that situation went down, when I was working, you want to talk about a helpless feeling. I felt like I was completely trapped. What was the correct, similar to my buddy, he didn't take the shot, got shot. Then he took the shot anyway. He just made it worse on himself. My, If you look at it rationally, but it's not rational. None of this stuff's yeah, rational, moment, man. It's, it's not. But I, without, you said you don't want to go into it, so I, I don't well, want to like, yeah, go there. But just, you're saying just one thing, and I just don't, I'll never talk about right. it. Right. So yeah. you're saying there's, an, there's, el- there's, there's an element that led to some of your shit that has to do with that. Yeah, and this has all been very thought-provoking thought for me to figure out. I'm like, dude, I don't even know. I'm going through all these things for 10 years, and I have no idea. Because I'm like, I'm not, I don't have any fear of... Like when I would come back from trips after being blown up and then you're home the next day, if I see a cardboard box back then, I'm swerving, dude. If I'm on 95, anything that was out of place, Mm. a parked car on the side of the road, you want to talk about hypervigilance. I mean, the day prior, I'm in Iraq and I got blown up. The following day, I'm trying to drive to a mall, you know, I'm back in in the civilian world. And those transitions are really tricky because it's a survival instinct you're fighting. Right. But um, I think it's fascinating. Like there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of layers to the understanding and the treatment of these types of things are very complicated. But I think people understand from those two examples of like, you don't even have to be a participant, you know, then there's sexual trauma. There's uh, so many layers to this conversation, but everybody's different. And they handle things differently. And it's not a weakness because, I mean, I can go through, I've probably been through a thousand freaking traumatic events that people would be like, what the hell, you know? Um, But they don't impact me because it's it's like certain things that might impact other people. They don't, they kind of like Teflon to that stuff now. And I think now I'm more equipped mentally than Mm -hmm. ever, which is nice. So I don't dwell to your point of... You know, you were asking about, don't I think, like, there there was, like, this paradigm of, like, you know, it was kind of ironic that when I got diagnosed with cancer, I had 26% or 27% survival for five years. That was my first, like, odds, you know, and I'm three years in, so do the math. But my new one, I have 9% chance because I'm stage four. I've, for a 10-year survival. So if you add those together, I'm sure the odds are very low. <laughs> but um, I don't um, – I have a really weird mindset when it comes to all this stuff. Um, I, I just don't think the things that are uh, – like I don't dwell on any of that stuff. And I feel like the work that I'm putting in has really paid dividends. Um but I think, let me regroup. You asked me, like, don't I think about it a lot? The only thought I had was a fleeting thought. I've had it a couple of times because I was like, how ironic is that I was like literally suicidal, wanting to kill myself certain days all day long. And then I get told that I'm not, I have a slow, I have a very slim percentage of 
that I might be able to make it a couple years, not like, you know, 10. And now I'm fighting like, cause I, I want to be around to do more for other people. And like, I'm motivated. I got a great purpose again. And well, there's irony there, but I also think it's a control freak thing. I think when, you know, I'm like, I'm not going out on somebody else's terms. <laughs> mm. Like in my, I think that's a psychology thing. I think in my, 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 my reptilian brain of mine, I was like, no one's going to tell me when I'm going to check out. I'm going to control. Uh, I can control when I do it or if I don't do it. And now uh, I don't think about it at all. Like I've finally had a reprieve of like the last six, well, about six, seven months. With nothing, man. What, been, what, what crossed you over to that? I think starting this documentary, man, like when I started my first interview, it was the first time I've ever been on camera, you know. And, what's, and let's tell people about that because you mentioned it once or twice, but what's what's the documentary and what's it consisted of? So we we started in, in January this year. I kind of got this. I was like, man, the, the reason I joke about being a professional sufferer, I said, wait a minute. Like I'm face, I faced a lot of freaking adversity, man, and I survived 10 years being suicidal. And I didn't like it. And I'm going to, I have to admit I have a problem. I'm going to do something about it. And I did it. So I started doing treatment. And then I'm like, I started getting more and more phone calls of my friends that have uh, either been struggling or committed suicide. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, if I can't figure this out, and I don't want this to sound narcissistic, I said, if I can't figure out this mental health shit, and I'm a freaking professional sufferer. I'm damn good. Like I can take a lot of pain physically and mentally and I have big shoulders. How the hell is other people not like going to, going to do it? Not to sound narcissistic again, but I'm like, Oh, they're not. That's why the suicide rate's so freaking high. Yeah. So I was like, I want to, I want to, I want to raise awareness and talk about my shit, even though I don't want to talk about my shit. It's one of the most cringy things to do. I don't want to do it. But I started calling film guys, and I, I called my. Uh, ended up talking to Daniel Beatty, who's uh, one of my producers. I said, "Hey, man, I'm doing this thing. I, I just want to talk about, you know, raise awareness, destigmatize, and provide some true resources to, to veterans that are struggling to make a difference, man. But I don't want it to be like a sob story. I want to make it inspiring, like Rocky, right?" So that's why we've been filming for uh, since January. My first interview on, the, I was like, bro, I don't, you know, being real, I, I don't know that I'm going to be around for the end of the documentary, man. But I'm like, if I end up killing myself, you need to fucking exploit it. Exploit the shit out of it, dude, because there'll be fucking gold. And you it, said that to him. I did. And he goes, what the fuck is wrong with you, man? I was like, well, that's where my head's at right now, bro. And that was in January. And I already had been putting in probably about nine months of work. And you're, to be clear, I was slightly confused on this because there were a couple of times where I thought maybe I was thinking of it wrong, but you, you're not working now, right? No, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I spend my, my day to day freaking seven days a week is working on the documentary, mm -hmm. our nonprofit, um, mm -hmm. brothers keeper veteran foundation. So we're starting to, you know, Really get some traction. And I want that to, like, the documentary is just a side project. That's what I've been solely focusing my time on from January to now. We've probably got about 95% of the filming done. So now it's all post work and putting together. I really want to make sure 
I want to do a good job from start to finish. And like I said, I really want to make it inspiring. So I told him, I said, I want you to film me in the gym, getting all jack stage four, looking sexy, you know? So he's following me around in the gym. And the first, you know, the first time out of surgery, I was like, had like no weight on. And I was like, oh my God. When was it? How long until your first workout after September surgery to take your lung out, part of your lung out? My first workout was, well, the day I got home, two days after surgery, I walked two and a half miles. I mean, yeah, I, that's that was amazing. a workout for me. But when when did you hit the gym and lift? I think it was two, a little over two weeks. I bought, <laughs> they they told me they were like, dude, you can't lift till six seven weeks post op. Fuck you! I'm doing it now. And I was now. like, well, I can do legs, and I hate legs because I'm always in I'm in so much yeah. pain. But I was like, I'll do leg extensions, leg curls, calf raises. And that's your scan, but you sent me this too. I'll put it in the yeah. corner of the screen. Am yeah. I allowed to put that in the corner yeah. of the screen? Yeah, um, as long as you got my got that my all bits, redacted. All, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's my yeah. So that's my right yeah. hip replacement, and then they, they this little dagger down here is the uh, goes into my what's left of my femur. Jesus Christ, man! So you're doing you're doing leg presses with that? You squatting? I can do hack squats. They Fuck. they said I'd never squat again, but they also said I'd never run again. Six months after surgery, I ran just to prove my surgeon wrong. So I filmed myself. Of course, shirtless looking sexy. They love like, that. There's nine ancestral that. tenants, bro. <laughs> and I was like, tell me I can't do something, motherfucker. And I'm running. And I sent it to my surgeon. I didn't walk for like uh, a week after that. I never did it again, but I just wanted to see I could do it. You're not juicing, are you? Huh? You're not juicing. No, I do TRT though. All right, good. Good. Yeah, that's I, the stuff that's the stuff Joe Rogan does, right? Uh, yeah, I can't take So that would get you that wouldn't pass in the MLB. It's just or testosterone, testosterone, man. It's testosterone. Yeah, I'm all like I'm almost I'm gonna be fifty in a few months, man. Fucking gotta keep amazing. those gotta keep a see anything that's um like if I was taking what the uh, Liver King did, I'd be dead. Um I was gonna say, how can you even super, do this? Well if like, you wanted to. There are some things like I'm a big advocate of TRT. If you're over forty, man, you get your levels checked. If, but like HGH and stuff, I got to think that just would. My my viewpoint on that, I think there are some anti-aging properties. I can't take it because I have cancer. Right. And there's studies both ways. I've never tried it. I was definitely interested when I hit 50. I was like, maybe I'll try it because, you know, through a testosterone replacement therapy, you know, an actual doctor. Because um, you got to make sure your blood levels or your um, blood works checked when you do TRT. Like that's the big thing. The guys mess up. These guys do all this gym bro stuff, mm. and things are not pharmace pharmaceutically graded testosterone. You're, you're crazy, man. But um, I can't take any of that stuff because it would supercharge my cancer. I'd be dead in like a week. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm the farthest thing from a doctor, but it just sounded like that. That wouldn't even that make no sense even to me. Yeah, but, you don't want cell proliferation if you have cancer. It's not good. Yeah, if I start going down that road trying to understand what you just said, we're gonna. <laughs> We're gonna have a problem. <laughs> you don't want things to start like splitting and growing, you know. Oh, oh, all right. Wait, now because, I just like, heard I heard that it makes back muscles in my head. Big, now, but it makes now it's cancer obvious. bigger. <laughs> yeah. Duh. That's my theory. Duh. Probably, probably gym science, but But still, I mean it's like it's it's amazing to see the will of people to overcome odds and again like the doctors gotta love that like oh my god look at this guy because it you know they, their job is to be conservative about things to take care of you and and then if you can if you can say hey this is good for me and you know if i could pull it off that'd be good for you too and look at me i did it these these dudes don't know what to think of me bro like i've gone <laughs> into so many different specials like right now i go to a cancer specialist who's kind of oversees all of this nonsense um 
because now it's lung, it's ortho, whatever. So I go into my cancer thing, man. I'll come out of the gym, dude. I'm wearing a tank top. I'm like, what's up? What are you guys in for? And the, <laughs> Dude, it's, it's sad, man. Like, I'm not trying to make light of it because everybody handles things differently, man. But you could ask my wife. I drive her crazy with this stuff because I'll be like, yeah. Like, when I have MRSA, I'm like, I got to take these things out so I can go lift. <laughs> They're like, what? I got to do something, man. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be like, it would be, because you, you also ask, you know, tying back to that uh, previous question, like there was that paradox where it was like, at one minute I'm suicidal, the next minute I don't want, you know, somebody to tell me I'm going to die of cancer. Like, that's so crazy. It's like you're, it's like you were, you were living to die, but now you're, you're dying to live, not to be too cliche. Right. But, but right. also like that inner bitch. Like I was thinking about it on the way here because I didn't go to the gym this morning. I'm kind of hating myself. I feel like a piece of shit. You flew in at fucking six thirty, bro. Yeah, I was at the. I had to leave the house at five fifteen, five thirty. Yeah, but it's okay. That that inner bitch, man. Because I'm like, then like you'll hear it kind of creep up. Why should you go to the gym, man? You're stage four. You're just gonna die of this shit. That's a fucking cop out, dude. That's what. That's that little thing, like, dude. Just have some more ice cream, bro. Just drive fast food. Like, where does it stop, right? What, so I can just do anything I want because of the situation? No, dude. I want, Like I said, I want to get my T-shirt with keeping stage four sexy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I want to inspire people, man. Like, what, I could just easily just fall off, not do anything, stay at home and just eat ice cream all day. I don't get any enjoyment out of that. I get enjoyment pushing. I want to optimize what God's given me to the maximum potential every day. And, that, and if that, you just have to recalibrate goals and everyone's going to have to do this. Maybe you break your leg. Doesn't mean you have to not go to the gym anymore. I've broken legs. I've broken knees or, well, ACL replacement on both legs. I have a torn ACL right now, 100% on my right leg because I'm not going to get it fixed. There's no point. Mm. I can, doesn't hurt, you know, I'm not going to do another surgery just for, just cause it's a year re rehab, you know. But I tell people, I'm like, dude, you know, get after that shit, man. Whatever your thing is. Like, I just hear those voices all day long of like, do it, man. Like, don't sit on your ass. Like, I was telling you, coming here, I was like, man, I should have went to the gym. Like, maybe I'll do it when I get home. And then gonna be, it'll be 11 o'clock. Fine, tomorrow, man. That might be an exception. But, you know, it's too easy to listen to that you know, maybe I shouldn't put more, a couple more hours in the work, you know, right. when you know you should, you know, like you got an important presentation coming up. You want to be overly prepared for. No, man, put that time in, you know, don't listen to that little naysayer voice in your head. It's that's a crutch, man. And speaking of crutch, when I went off my I was on a cane, a walker and a wheelchair. As soon as I came off that, that, uh crutch I, I threw i threw that shit out i donated my wheelchair <laughs> i donated my freaking walker i was like i don't want to ever have that in the house some people are like well keep it you might need it oh, fucking Fuck buy a new shit. one no man yeah. i don't want to look at that shit i don't wow. want to go back on that shit if i go back on that that means i'm fucking near death dude that's the next time you're gonna see me on that shit but day one this year in january when you're filming that documentary yeah. as you said you looked at that dude was that on camera too? Where you yeah. said, "If I'm if I'm dead, you gotta." No, I just told this. him. I said, "Man, I don't know if I'm gonna live to see the end of this documentary, bro." 
And since then, it just progressively, the work that we put into the documentary was so uncomfortable for me. Like I told you about, you know, I had to tell my buddy Ron that he saved my life that time. And I wasn't sure that he knew or didn't know. I just, he knew he was coming because I wasn't in good shape, but he, he didn't know the gravity of the situation until I went out and flew out there. And I, it was super rough to do, dude. Cause he's like my brother, man, it's closer than a brother. And I mean, we've been through it all like death and war and training and stress things that, you know, you know, the, you know, someone at a granular level and uh, some things that we don't have to even speak about, you know, it's like, yep. But that was something I guess I needed to do because everything was like light. Like, I feel like I'm getting closure and everything, man. Closure. Like John, you said that, I'm, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure like yeah. you said that that was the crossing point, right? Where you're like, that's where it kind of switched. Once you started this, where you finally had that, Oh, like, you know what? Like, this is what I got to do, and I'm, I don't need to feel – it's not that I don't – I can I can learn better how to deal with those constant ideations I was having. Yeah, they're gone. Like, I had maybe one or two slips this whole year, man. Like, it's, when I say a record, it's like profound record. And I'll tell you one last thing, like – so because I'm doing this documentary, you know, we've been self-funding this whole thing. So we're like, hey, man, if you guys like what we're doing or what we stand for and we want to help us with the documentary, you can go to this site. So John's father, I haven't spoke to him. I just couldn't deal with – John Zinn. Yeah, John Zinn's father. When he passed away, I was super involved for two years and I couldn't hack it anymore because I was suicidal. I was like, dude, I got to get away from this. So I moved to Greenville and I couldn't. I felt a lot of shame and guilt with how I handled the situation with him and the family. I just, it, it broke me, man, like in a million pieces. So I noticed that there was a, I have like a, I wanted to thank every, all our donors. So I'm going through the list and I see his father donated, you know, money to our uh, documentary. And I was like, oh my goodness, I gotta do a thank you. Well, I can't just do a thank you. I haven't talked to him in 10 years. And I feel shame and guilt because I'm a piece of shit. I should have been there for his kids. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it, dude. Um, so I, I made amends with that situation with the other part of the family, but I never did with him. I just didn't have the balls. So I wrote this letter, man, like about a month ago, like everything else. And I'm telling you, man, it's like all these like, like incremental steps. I was like, I got to man the fuck up and write him a letter that he deserves. Cause he's not getting any younger. I said, man, that shit, you know, with John, the situation broke me. And, um, you know, I'd never been broken before, but that's the damn, <laughs> I mean, that was it. I said, I was wanted to kill myself, you know, like attempted to kill myself. And um, I just feel a lot of shame and guilt. And I, I basically wrote this letter and I sent it out. So he gave me one in response because I'm not on Facebook. I've never been. So my wife handles that shit. <laughs> so he wrote her, hey, sent him a letter back. He said his letter made me cry. And I was like, in a good positive way. So I've had his letter for about a week and a half being a little bitch because I didn't want to deal with it before any like media stuff because I didn't want to get like, you know, it's probably going to rock me a little bit. 
but it's good shit, man. Like, I, I said, hey, I want to maintain a relationship, man. I'll come up there and see you guys. You know, maybe I'll do it next month. But this was like those incremental steps, man, that you do. I think I want to fucking read that thing. It's been on my desk for a week purposely because I was like, let me get past these. got these three things I got to take care of from a work perspective. So are I don't want to be you all fucked up. You are know? you afraid of what's what could be in there? No, I just feel game, uh, uh, shame, a lot of shame and guilt on, I always, I, I could have done better, man. Like I, I did, I gave everything that I had to the point where it broke me, but you know, time has gone past. Like I couldn't even talk about this a couple of years ago. I wouldn't even be like, fuck you, dude, <laughs> go fuck yourself. I'm not talking about you, about any of this shit with anybody. I tell everyone I'm an open book. You know, like I'll answer literally anything but one thing and I'm like, ask me anything and I'm open book because I think my experiences, there might be some benefit and utility to people or someone out there. And I told my buddy when I started um, talking about doing the documentary in January when I said, man, I don't know if I'm going to be around, but if I fucking kill myself, fucking exploit the shit out of me. He was like, what the hell? I was like, welcome, welcome aboard, dude. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weird dude. But, um, yeah, through that whole process, I'm trying to think where I was going with that train of thought. Um, yeah, it's been, um, it's been, uh, progressively better though. I don't know where I was going with my train of thought. It's, well, it's a, cathartic I, too, doing what you're doing. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's been easier every time, you know, every time you kind of plow through, you're like, uh, some things are easier and some things are kind of still difficult but like i'm actually kind of looking forward to, to, to reading his uh letter i just didn't want to i didn't know what it was going to say so i was like ah, i don't want to get kicked in the dick but i'm not worried about going back to a dark place at all like i just feel like it's closure man like i told him what i needed to get off my chest because it was fucking eating me alive um to, that was just one little thing it wasn't even a big you know but um, in the grand scheme of things, I was like, man, I got to get that closure with John's dad, dude. Cause what if he dies next, you know, before I get to tell him? Yeah. I, I asked you know? that a couple minutes ago in the follow up to it. I asked it a, a really open question. Like, are you afraid? Which without context wasn't good because it doesn't sound right. Like how that came out. But what I meant was you, it's clear to me just based on what you said, but also like how you're feeling and your body language, like there, that is that you're very happy that he acknowledged that and that they're, you know, you're going to have a relationship with him and, and you can have peace with that. But that's a, that's a guilt from your life that you couldn't deal with that and, and needed to get away from it all. And when I said, are you afraid of what it's going to say? What I meant was, are you afraid that that, of course, that elephant in the room is going to be acknowledged and what he says to you and you don't want to read it to reinforce the fact of what you already feel about it towards yourself yeah i think it's gonna be a positive thing but again it goes down to like lost time you can't get back you know like yeah in a perfect world i don't have any regrets because you only know what you know now once you go through a certain and it educates you and such david goggins just had a really good one he, he said like i think i was telling you previous to the, the the podcast he's like dude when i run like a 62 hour run 240 miles i learn more in that dark moment, you know, where I'm suffering, 
I learned seven years of life in that 62 minute or 62, uh, I guess it was hour, uh, yeah. race. Yeah. And I was like, man, that's some freaking deep shit. And it doesn't totally jibe with what I'm doing and feeling, but the closure is really important to me because I don't have any, I'm not like worried from a religious perspective, like where I'm at with God. Like, I'm like, look, dude, I'm doing the best I can. I'm a good dude. Um, trying to help other people and, and, and be a better human being all the way around. But I don't want to leave any loose ends. And I never even thought about this one. This one just was like a gift of what I'm doing. This letter was a, like, I was just like, well, I got to man up. I had to do something uncomfortable. Uh, you know, again, I, I preach that all the time. I'm like, if you want to grow, you're growing in the dark, man. That's where the growth happens when you're in this grimy, gritty, I didn't want to write that letter to him. Like it was fucking hard, man. Like it brought back old shit. I didn't want to fucking deal with. But, you but did. when I sent it, I was like, that was the right thing to do. Yes. And you just man the fuck up. And that's what's important. And then when he responded, I was like, all right, he's not even, he's not mad at me. I'm not mad at him. It's just a shitty, we went through a really shitty yeah. time in our life and it broke everybody, man. But, um, you know, I, 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 I have it. a I have a little a little theory here and I'm I'm almost like afraid to throw it out there, but don't <laughs> don't be afraid to shut this the fuck down at the end if it's completely wrong. But listening to you speak today and we've been recording for about at this point somewhere in the neighborhood of like four hours and fifteen minutes or something like that. So some of it is blending together as to what was talked about in the car or before the camera started rolling versus what was on camera. But I'm going to recite some of the things you've at least told me and, and said on camera in some cases. You had been talking about at one point the fact that in society there's – you mentioned like the divorce rate and the product of a lot of kids who don't know how to deal with their masculinity maybe they don't have a father figure in their life where they they have a not very good one or you know their parents are divorced and they spend a lot of less time around their dad and then you related that back to your situation growing up where you were a product of divorce as well but you went with your dad unlike your other siblings so you did it's clear you had a great relationship with your dad up and down while you were growing up as well because you were in some trouble but like you loved the guy and and were there taking care of him when he died a few years ago and looking at like your story over the last decade or so leading from john's death all the way through all those years of struggle into getting this insanely tragic diagnosis and everything and having to deal with that head on and and constantly worrying about you know your, your self-worth and stuff like that you still struggled with that as you've now laid out in the first year and a half two years of this diagnosis and or three years almost of this diagnosis and started to come to a to a to a peace with it once you began this cathartic process of the documentary and now doing some of the media and things like this around it i guess talk about marcus luttrell right talking with Black Rifle Coffee, like you've been yep. on some some really good good shows and, and veteran shows as well, guys who can relate better than – a lot better than I can. But, you know, you putting that out as your legacy, so to speak, so that it can be used after 
after your death and, and talking so fondly about your own relationship with with your father and then also talking about your great relationship with your stepson who's you know your your stepdad it, it wasn't your official kid but you look at it that way and you feel a calling to leave an example for him but also while you're here teach him well and and help him make good decisions I think a, a big piece of, of what you've done is you've been such a high-level, busy, important guy for your entire adult life since you were 18, doing crazy life-and-death shit and constantly taking care of all the other people around you as well, that for life, whatever reasons, you didn't have your kid. And so in a lot of ways, you found that peace in trying to be a father for other people so that when you're gone – that's something that they you will leave things for them that they can learn from, whether it's just listening to a podcast like this here or the other ones you're doing or seeing what that documentary will end up being. You want to be that father figure that you feel like society is lacking. Yeah. No, I think that, that that's a great summary, man, because part of the, the other thing that got me ramped up was when I was diagnosed in 19, obviously 2020, you know, I was kind of recovering and the world changed, man. You had the pandemic and all this nonsense going on, all this negativity. I'm like, man, this isn't the country I recognize. This isn't the country I love, man. Like what is going on with this division and everything is just like hot button topics. So I was like, man, the, we just need more people. Like when I tell people I, I want to uh, like, I've never been on social media. I never wanted to be in front of a camera Still don't, but I feel like there's doing a there's, good job. There's good in it, right? Yeah. So I want to weaponize social media. I tell people all the time, man, I want to weaponize it for good. And I don't care what the algorithms, I don't care how many followers, I just want the right people, man. So I'm like, if people are on Instagram, you can follow me at Chris underscore Cathers. Like that's how you can be part of the movement. What's your website too? Um we we are it? we are brothers keeper with an S dot com. So we're going to revamp that site. We're work, working on it in January. Uh, but if anybody wants to donate or, or kind of keep, you know, following what we're doing as far as the documentary, that'll be a good good way to do it. So the documentary is going to be called Brothers Keeper. But the yeah. website, just so I have that right, and I'll put it on the screen it's too. It's wearebrotherskeeper.com. Okay, Brothers Keeper. Okay, got it. Yeah. So first of all, I'm, I'm really excited to see how that looks because you and I talked when – Obviously, you were already well underway with this, and now we're talking now, and it's pretty. As I think you said it's like ninety five percent done. Yeah, as far as like the filming, that right. aspect's done. So post work is where we just. I just want to make sure this this really meets the mark, man. It's a high. I have a high bar of expectations. I want something that people can like. Because I always joke around. I'm like, it's a dark subject matter, man. Yeah. And it, depending on how people frame this, like obviously, clearly, I don't think my my life has not been dark. I think my life. I've had so many opportunities to do cool shit and travel the world and do stuff i have my bucket list is almost empty that's why i'm also choosing to do what i'm doing because i've done everything man i've traveled like there's not like oh i should go to machu picchu that would be cool i feel good man i feel good what, what i haven't done from a legacy perspective is i've helped people individually but i've never really like i never had the thought to man i could really impact maybe save some lives man get people to get maybe seek out treatment that weren't going to, that might yeah. end up killing themselves. That's freaking rad. And if I can do it from a legacy perspective where the foundation continues to help people that are struggling, you know, I'd love to do it to everybody. It's just the veteran community was near and dear and easy for me to reach. Yeah. 
but it, it impacts everybody, man. Civilians, paramedics, first responders, knows no boundaries, man. It's just the frequency of veterans. Historically, at least during the 20 years of war, they were encountering things at a, a rapid rate, not like the previous years. So that's the only reason that I think the numbers are so much higher is there's so much more social um, or there's more frequency to trauma, you know, over the last 20 years. They're just people are going at some point you got to put the race car back in the garage. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, that's well said, man. It's really fucking well said. I got to get you out of here in a few yeah, minutes because we got to get you to the airport. But. You know, you've first of all, thank you so much for for how open you've been today. This is this has been great, and if you didn't have to leave, like I'd keep this going because there's so much to talk about. But you know, you you have it's very clear that at least on the outside, and I'd say you're pretty fucking convincing if you're hiding it. You are you are brave and matter of fact in in facing what you're facing right now, and that's an incredibly inspiring. But you know, you talked about that spiritual a- aspect of it all with life and death and everything and we got into that a little bit around religion and meaning but you know what to you you've said you've said something along the lines of like i i don't i don't really care i don't really think about it too much but like what's a perfect if 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 we if none of us know and none of us do but if none of us know what happens on the other side what 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 do you think would be a perfect scenario for you i mean the perfect scenario for me right now is um well there's two things i mean one from a suffering perspective i i I got the the the, uh, moniker right i prefer not to suffer for like five months because i i think one of the problems i'm gonna have is i'm super strong-willed and my biggest fear is like for for me i'm just being brutally honest like i know how much shit i can take and i can take a lot of shit and i saw my dad how much shit he could take and i thought I got a couple notches up on him. Now I'm questioning <laughs> that. If I can die with half the grace that my father did, um, that he set the bar freaking high, man. Um, that was just crazy. And that that's the only thing that worries me about uh, the whole death topic is, am I going to be that strong will where I'm just going to keep suffering super long time? But I'm good at it, so either way, I'll probably try to do it with a smile on my face. But <laughs> that's, just, that's one thing. But I don't, other than that, man, everything that I'm doing, I've got more joy out of this last year from some of the pursuits. And it's not from a professional. I'm not getting paid any money, you know. Like, it's not about money. I don't. I told the documentary guys, Netflix buys this thing for whatever. I don't give a shit. All I want to do is put the money into the foundation. I'm like, I'm not into this for my nine ancestral tenants. See how I tied that back around. <laughs> so, I mean, you already made, you're money getting closing the life. loop. Yeah. You've got to close the loop, man. Like reading that letter. When I get home tomorrow, I'm going to do that. Checking that block, which gives me fulfillment, man. Like that. I'm closing that another chapter and opening another door. Like, I don't want any of this. I don't want anything over my head. You know, like, do you believe I, I wish I should have done this. I wish I should have done that. Like if once I get, some of these things done and start getting like feedback from people. Like I've already gotten a ton of feedback from people that I've helped. And that's the most rewarding thing, man. Money doesn't touch any of that shit. You know, it's pretty dope. Do you believe in heaven? Like, you know, like geographically? <laughs> you talking like, because I flew up at 30,000 feet today, man. And I always thought it was in the clouds. 
That's an awesome, <laughs> awesome comeback right there. <laughs> You're not setting me up again. I'm not but, trying to set you up. It's a very direct question. That it's was a, a bunk. heavy question, but um, I, I it depends if you mean literally or figuratively. Oh, you're getting like metaphysical on me here. I know. See, can I punt on this one? <laughs> you can. Hey, you can do whatever you want, man. You don't have to answer anything. I mean, because we could we could sit here and like you know that's a tough a tough question because then you have the literal and the figurative sense. You know, depends on. There's a anyway punt. <laughs> all right, we'll 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 punt that. And I'd love to. I you look amazing. First of all, you, well, I mean, I would never know you were you had cancer at all. You look like a fucking. It's not easy to eat this much anymore. It's incredible though. Like, Seriously, you should you deserve a fuck ton of credit for that, and it's incredibly inspiring. But I I hope you keep battling and and doing your thing and and get the story out there as well. And I I'd I'd love to be sitting with you here a year from now. That'd be pretty fucking yeah, cool. Man. Looking just like this. Yeah, that's the goal, man. Swallows the goal, size is the prize. Nine ancestral tenants, man. Oh, God, <laughs> I'm going to go home and eat some liver. Never <laughs> just don't start eating testicles, man. Come on. Yeah, I, no. I, I don't need you being like, look, no. I have stage four cancer. Testicles are keeping me alive. Please don't do that. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Listen, All Chris, right. thank you so much, man. This, yeah, I appreciate this was amazing, you for having me, man. And, and, and I'm really, really, really glad you came to do this. I appreciate it. All right, everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.